Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 77 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, what does justification by faith actually mean? Must we earn favor with God by doing good works and being good people? So happy Tuesday, friends. Another shorter podcast today due to another incredibly long pastoral letter or email written tonight that's uh, put me a little bit behind, but that'll help make up for our very long podcast episode yesterday. If you missed it, episode 76 is one of my favorites so far. A uh, very strange topic, but uh, I think a really interesting discussion of John 6 uh, and uh, some fantastic insights from D.A. Carson were shared there. So go check it out if you missed it, but not right now because I think we're going to have a good time tonight too. Uh, today's Bible passages are Exodus 28, Proverbs chapter 4, John 7, and Galatians 3, which is our focus passage. And our big question is focused on in one of the most uh, deep and beautiful and really central truths of Christianity that salvation and justification, which is a word that means being made righteous in the eyes of God, those things are not by our actions, our works, or our internal merit or goodness, but by believing in Jesus, the one who has done the action, and he's the one that has the internal goodness. So let's read Galatians 3 and come back and discuss justification by Faith. And Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who have faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds, as though referring, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it's no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. 
Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus." For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So we see in here, in Paul's heart, very clear in Galatians, because he's kind of wearing it on his sleeve, and he's pleading with the Galatians not to abandon the core of Christianity, which is saved by grace through faith in favor of the core of religion, which is salvation by works and earning the favor of God. There's Religion is completely different from Christianity. Religion's all about what you can do to earn God's favor. Christianity is all about what has been done for you. Paul reminds the Galatians that the presence of the Holy Spirit was not given to them because they completely followed the law, but because of their belief or their faith. He reminds them that growing in the Christian life is also not by striving works, but by a work of the Spirit through grace and faith. The illustration he uses so that they will understand what he's telling them is the illustration of Abraham. God didn't choose Abraham and save Abraham because Abraham was special. God chose Abraham in grace and saved him because Abraham believed God's promise. So let's turn to our friend, Pastor David Platt, to help us understand that God chose Abraham by grace, not because of Abraham's goodness. This is what Platt says. First, for Abraham to believe God means that he was transformed by the sovereign grace of God. I want you to think about this with me. This whole story started at the end of Genesis 11 and beginning of Genesis 12. Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldeans. This is a pagan people in a pagan place. It's modern-day Iraq. We have no indication whatsoever in Genesis 11 or 12 or anywhere else that There was something in Abraham that caused God to say, I need to make him the father of my people. The initiative is completely with God. You see it in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, because five times God says, I will do this. You see no emphasis there on what Abraham's doing in this picture. It's all based on the gracious initiative of God. God is saying, I'm going to bless him. It's God calling out Abraham. Why Abraham? We know Job was living around at this time, and he was righteous. I'm sure there were other people there, maybe even a lot of better people. Why did God choose Abraham? And what we're seeing here is 
is that it's nothing more than the sovereign grace of God at work. He called out Abraham. He chose Abraham by his grace. And that's the story we're going to see in the rest of Abraham's life. Because let's think about it. Admit it. The father of faith in the Bible is not always the most stellar character. This is the guy who's willing to lie on a couple of different occasions in order to protect his life. This is a guy who almost gave his wife away to the king of Egypt. This is a guy who struggles with his faith numerous different times. But the picture is that this is intentional. God's choice is intentional. God is showing us that the picture of his covenant is not going to be based on what is found in man and what man man can produce on his own, it's going to be found in the grace of God. And the picture is that Abraham's entire life, his faith itself, is evidence of God's grace in his life. He was transformed by the sovereign grace of God. Now, that was from a sermon that David Platt preached in Birmingham, Alabama, Church of Brook Hills in 2010. Next, let's think about what it means that Abraham was justified by faith. Now, we've heard about Abraham chosen by grace. Now, what does it mean that he was saved or justified by faith? It's important to realize, as we're talking about this, that in the same way that Abraham was justified by faith, we who are in Christ are also justified by faith. That's why I think it's really super important for us to understand what Paul is saying here. And you know what? We'll go back to our friend David Platt to help us understand what faith involves. And Platt says, Paul builds this whole picture of Abraham being justified by faith. Abraham having righteousness credited to him because he believed God, because he believed the promises of God, because he had faith. But then what's so cool is you get to the end in verse 22, and it's talking about faith in Abraham. And he says, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. But listen to this, Paul says, the words, quote, it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead. The whole picture is believe, have faith. And that's why you get to this triumphant pronouncement in Romans chapter five, verse one, that says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The picture, says Platt, is that faith dominates us. Now we've got to be clear on what faith means here because people have all kinds of ideas about what faith means, even in the church. And there's a faith that leads to salvation and there's a faith that doesn't lead to salvation. So what is biblical faith? The kind of saving faith that's being talked about here, a faith that leads to salvation. I want to show you two facets of it in Romans, says Platt. Faith involves first turning. What happens in Romans 4 and 5 is Paul develops the picture that we are justified by faith alone. Then you get to chapter 6 of Romans and he says that he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. When you place your faith in Christ, when you trust in him, that means you turn from sin. You don't live in sin any longer. So faith is first a turning from sin. Faith next involves trusting, turning from sin, 
turning to him and trusting him. He becomes our life. We turn from sin and ourselves and we turn to Jesus. This is what it means to have faith in Jesus. He becomes our life. Look at Romans 8, 10 through 11. Listen to how Paul talks about this transformation. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. When you see the character of God and the sinfulness of man and the sufficiency of Christ, and you turn from your sin and you trust in the sufficiency of Christ, then he becomes your life. Paul develops this in depth. Keep going towards Romans chapter 10, and we read, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, the same Lord is Lord of all. And then we get to Romans 10:13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So faith involves a turning away from sin, and it involves a trusting in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus, first of all, as Lord, and, and then trusting in him as Savior. That's what Paul is talking about, of course, in the whole book of Romans, and also what Paul is talking about in our Galatians passage today, that we are saved By grace, not because we're awesome, not because we're good, not because we've captured the attention of God by doing works. No, we're saved by grace. We don't deserve it, and that's good news. We're saved by grace through faith. What is faith? It's turning from ourselves and our sin, and it's turning to Jesus. It's not a work, it's a belief. It's a belief that impels us to turn away from sin and turn toward Jesus and follow him. And that is what justification by faith is all about. It's not that we do things so that God will save us. It's that we trust in him and turn to him because of what Jesus, his son, has done. All right, let's keep going and reading in our Exodus chapter 28 passage, starting with verse 1. Have your brother Aaron with his sons come to you from the Israelites to serve me as priest. Aaron, his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Make holy garments for your brother Aaron for glory and beauty. You are to instruct all the skilled artisans whom I have filled with a spirit of wisdom to make Aaron's garments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. These are the garments they must make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a specially woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make holy garments for your brother Aaron and his son so that they may serve me as priests. They should use gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen. They are to make the ephod of finely spun linen embroidered with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. It must have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it can be joined together. The artistically woven waistband that is on the ephod must be of one piece according to the same workmanship of gold, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and of finely spun linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of Israel's sons, six of their names on the first stone and the remaining six names on the second stone. 
in the order of their birth. Engrave the two stones with the names of Israel's sons as a gem cutter engraves a seal. Mount them surrounded with gold filigree settings. Fasten both stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the Israelites. Aaron will carry their names on his two shoulders before the Lord as a reminder. Fashion gold filigree settings in two chains of pure gold. You will make them of braided cord work and attach the cord chains to the settings. You are to make an embroidered breast piece for making decisions. Make it with the same workmanship as the ephod. Make it of gold, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and of finely spun linen. It must be square and folded double, nine inches long and nine inches wide. Place a setting of gemstones on it, four rows of stones. The first row should be a row of carnelian, topaz, and emerald. The second row, a turquoise, a lapis lazuli, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They should be adorned with gold filigree in their settings. The twelve stones are to correspond to the names of Israel's sons. Each stone must be engraved like a seal with one of the names of the twelve tribes. You are to make braided chains of pure gold work for the breastpiece. Fashion two gold rings for the breastpiece and attach them to its two corners. Then attach the two gold cords to the two gold rings at the corners of the breastpiece. Attach the other ends of the two cords to the two filigree settings and in this way attach them to the ephod shoulder pieces in the front. Make two other gold rings and put them at the two other corners of the breastpiece on the edge that is next to the inner border of the ephod. Make two more gold rings and attach them to the bottom of the ephod's two shoulder pieces on its front, close to its seam, and above the ephod's woven waistband. The artisans are to tie the breastpiece from its rings to the rings of the ephod with a cord of blue yarn so that the breastpiece is above the ephod's waistband and does not come loose from the ephod. Whenever he enters the sanctuary, Aaron is to carry the names of Israel's son over his heart on the breastpiece for decisions as a continual reminder before the Lord. Place the Urim and Thummim in the breastpiece for decisions so that they will also be over Aaron's heart whenever he comes before the Lord. Aaron will continually carry the means of decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. You are to make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue yarn. There should be an opening at its top in the center of it. Around the opening, there should be a woven collar with an opening like that of body armor so that it does not tear. Make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn on its lower hem and all around it. Put gold bells between them all the way around so that gold bells and pomegranates alternate around the lower hem of the robe. The robe will be worn by Aaron whenever he ministers, and its sound will be heard when he enters the sanctuary before the Lord and when he exits so that he does not die. You are to make a pure gold medallion and engrave it like the engraving of a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten it to a cord of blue yarn so that it can be placed on the turban. The medallion is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead so that Aaron may bear the guilt connected with the holy offerings that the Israelites consecrate as all their holy gifts. It is always to be on his forehead so that they may find acceptance with the Lord. 
You are to weave the tunic from fine linen, make a turban of fine linen, and make an embroidered sash. Make tunics, sashes, and headbands for Aaron's sons to give them glory and beauty. Put these on your brother Aaron and his sons, then anoint, ordain, and consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Make them linen undergarments to cover their naked bodies. They must extend from the waist to the thighs. These must be worn by Aaron and his sons whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the sanctuary area so that they do not incur guilt and die. This is to be a permanent statute for Aaron and for his future descendants. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 1. Listen, sons, to a father's discipline, and pay attention so that you may gain understanding. For I am giving you good instruction. Don't abandon my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender and precious to my mother, he taught me and said, Your heart must hold on to my words. Keep my commands and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Don't forget or turn away from the words from my mouth. Don't abandon wisdom and she will watch over you. Love her and she will guard you. Wisdom is supreme, so get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. If you embrace her, she will honor you. She will place a garland of favor on your head. She will give you a crown of beauty. Listen, my son, accept my words and you will live many years. I am teaching you the way of wisdom. I am guiding you on straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Don't let go. Guard it, for it is your life. Keep off the path of the wicked. Don't proceed on the way of evil ones. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn away from it and pass it by. For they can't sleep unless they have done what is evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until midday. But the way of the wicked is like the darkest gloom. They don't know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to my words. Listen closely to my sayings. Don't lose sight of them. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Don't let your mouth speak dishonestly. Don't let your lips talk deviously. Let your eyes look forward. Fix your gaze straight ahead. Carefully consider the path for your feet, and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or the left. Keep your feet away from evil. John chapter 7 verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told them, My time is not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I am not going up to this festival because my time is not yet fully come. After he'd said these things, he stayed in Galilee. 
After his brothers had gone to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, Where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, How is this man so learned since he hasn't even been trained? Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who is trying to kill you? I perform one work, and you are all amazed, Jesus answered. This is why Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet, look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing about him. Can it be true that the authorities know he's the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. As he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, You know me, and you know where I come from, yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. You know I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. Then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, When the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him, and so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time. Then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, Where does he intend to go so we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, This truly is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah. But some said, Surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. 
Then the servants came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked him, Why didn't you bring him? The servants answered, No man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? Have you any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and was one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate. You will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Then each went to his house. And, brothers and sisters, that little verse there, John 7.53, opens up one of the more debated and interesting passages in the Bible. The story of the woman caught in adultery in John 7.53 through 8.11. Was it in the Bible or not? Did it happen or not? Was it a later edition? Join us for the action-packed answer tomorrow on episode number 78 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Until then, stay safe, brothers and sisters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Godspeed.